The last time Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin met, it was a very different world. April 2019, in Vladivostok, Russia, just over the border from North Korea. Over champagne at a reception, Putin said, I propose a toast to further strengthening our friendship. The meeting was about strengthening that alliance. The two leaders discussed denuclearization and potential arms deals. No specific agreements were made. But at the time, Russia was not at war. Now, North Korea is one of the few countries to openly support Russia since its invasion of Ukraine last year. This week, Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin are expected to meet for the first time since 2019. And the White House is concerned. And we will continue to call on North Korea to abide by its public commitments not to supply weapons to Russia that will end up killing Ukrainians. That's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan speaking at a press conference this week. The U.S. has placed targeted sanctions to prevent North Korea from supplying weapons to Russia. Last year, the White House said the Wagner Group, a private Russian military force, took a delivery of arms from North Korea. North Korea denied this and said they have no plans to supply Russia with weapons. As National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan put it, What has changed in their calculus is not something that I can speak to. That's in the mind of Kim Jong-un, and he obviously will be the ultimate decision maker. Consider this. Russia needs weapons. North Korea has them. So what do the North Koreans want in return? From NPR, I'm Ari Shapiro. It's Monday, September 11th. It's Consider This from NPR. This week, a dark green train with yellow trim rolled slowly down a track at the border where Russia, China, and North Korea meet. Inside one of its 90 or so cars was believed to be the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. This is his first known trip outside North Korea in more than four years. And he's traveling in his preferred mode of transportation, a custom-built armored train, just as his father and grandfather before him traveled. This week, the destination for that locomotive entourage is believed to be the Russian city of Vladivostok, where Kim and Putin are expected to meet. So when that train pulls into the station, what is each side hoping to get from the other? To help us answer that question, we are joined by Jean Lee, the former Pyongyang bureau chief for the Associated Press, and Angela Stent, director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University. Welcome to you both. Good to be on the show. Hi. This meeting comes with President Putin in a tight spot. The war in Ukraine is grinding on, and it's unclear who has the upper hand right now. So, Angela, let's begin with you. What does Putin want from Kim in this meeting? Well, this is quite a reversal of fortune for Russia. You know, the great superpower is now more or less the supplicant uh, to one of the most isolated countries in the world. I think what Putin needs immediately uh, from Kim Jong-un is weapons. It's ammunition. Uh, they run, the Russians are running out of artillery. They're running out of other things that they need to continue prosecuting this war. Uh, but I think Putin is also elevating uh, North Korea's position and really changing, Russia's changing its policy toward North Korea because of the Ukraine war. And I think uh, Kim is the beneficiary of this. Jean, can you speak to that 
power shift, that reversal, and the opportunity that it presents for Kim and for North Korea? There isn't often a time when North Korea has something to offer anyone, to be honest. So this is a perfect moment for Kim Jong-un to step in and say, look, I have something you need for a change. North Korea was a country that did invest in its conventional weaponry with Soviet support for decades. So they've got what Russia needs. And what North Korea needs, what Kim Jong-un needs, is a platform, a stage. He is coming out of four years of isolation, and he wants to make another big debut. And so with this visit, there are, of course, those promises that he and Putin may make about their partnership. But he also gets this chance to send a message to his foes about the role that he can still play as a disruptor. And he'll have this incredibly valuable propaganda that he'll be able to take back home to the North Korean people about his influence with a powerful neighbor. Uh, Well, he will say that they are powerful at a time when the people may be questioning the decisions that he's made to keep the country under such isolation over the past four years. So it has the potential to change the narrative of North Korea as a purely isolated rogue state. And and, and this is not the first time the two men have met. In 2019, Kim took a train to Vladivostok, and the two countries didn't reach any major agreements then. But, but what do we know about their ongoing relationship since then? So from the Russian point of view, you know, the relationship with North Korea really deteriorated after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But under Putin, gradually the relationship with North Korea has improved. Very recently, you had the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, going to North Korea, the first time a Russian defense minister had been there since the collapse of the Soviet Union, touring factories, admiring the munitions, the things that Russia needs to buy, participating in celebrations um, of the anniversaries um, uh, in North Korea. So that was already a signal that things were really going to change. I would say from the Russian point of view, there's also a South Korean angle here. South Korea did join with the United States and Japan and all the European countries in imposing sanctions on Russia. It's condemned the war in Ukraine. Uh, In 2014, when Russia uh, occupied Crimea, South Korea did not take a position like that. And I think Putin is trying to use this as leverage to try and kind of warn the South Koreans, this is what we can do. And in supporting North Korea, we could make it an even more dangerous adversary. And the South Koreans have already been seeing uh, many provocations from North Korea just in the past few months. Gene, how far-fetched is it to imagine that this meeting could open the door to North Korea becoming part of an alliance that stands counter to NATO? I mean, whether you include Iran, whether you include China, is there a scenario in which North Korea starts to become, if not a full-fledged, at least sort of a a, a corollary to that alternative uh, grouping of countries? I think one thing that we have to confront is that even though North Korea has been in isolation over the past four years, they've been quiet. And so in some ways they've dropped off our radar, especially the first few years of isolation. They have been continuing to expand and build their nuclear program. The advancements that North Korea has made over the last several years are undeniable. And that does mean that they're going to play a bigger role, despite the fact that it's a poor country, despite that it has very few friends. It has the potential and the power to play a role in changing the global order in terms of proliferation. Paradoxically, the Russia-Ukraine war has given a number of 
I would say, middle-level countries, but also including even a country like North Korea, the opportunity to say, hey, we don't, you know, here you have the great powers arrayed against each other, all this competition. We want to use this to kind of assert our importance regionally um, and to have more say in the global order um, and to have more agency. And, you know, we think about countries like Brazil or India, but even a country like North Korea now can be a more important regional player because of this war. And I think this is one of the unintended consequences of this that, you know, we didn't foresee. And that's why I say Kim Jong-un also wants to insert himself as a disruptor. I mean, the Koreans have always seen themselves as what they say, a shrimp among whales, a tiny country that has always had to fend off these larger neighbors. And North Korea has really embraced this idea that in order to stay relevant, in order to survive, you have to be somewhat of a disruptor. They really embrace that. Unfortunately, we're starting to see how they've managed to use that to their advantage. Do either of you think that a stronger Russia-North Korea relationship should be a cause of great concern for NATO and the West? I mean, I think it should be a cause of concern, maybe not great concern yet. But I think, you know, if you just look at what's happening in Northeast Asia and in these kind of shifting relationships, Russia, China, now North Korea, and then again, the, the joint Russian-Chinese harassment of the South Koreans and the Japanese, um, I, I think that the, the stronger North Korea-Russia relationship should be a cause for concern. I don't think it endangers anything at the moment. But I think if Russia keeps getting more of the ammunition and what it needs to continue prosecuting the war in Ukraine, from North Korea, then that will have an impact on the course of the war. Angela Stent is director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University. And Jean Lee, a former Pyongyang bureau chief at the Associated Press, she hosts a podcast called The Lazarus Heist about North Korea's cyber theft. It's Consider This from NPR. I'm Ari Shapiro.